the Empire Podcast this week, Kick-Ass 2 director Jeff Wadlow dons a mask and a skin-tight wetsuit to enter the pod booth. We insist upon all our guests doing that, by the way. The legendary ex-Python, ex-Basil Faulty and ex-Archie Leach, Mr. John Cleese, also drops by. We tackle two guns and Elysium, and there's the usual combo of news and nonsense on the only movie podcast that thinks Gareth Bale should be the new Batman. He's already got the ears, you see. It's a topical joke. Uh, hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. As ever, I'm joined by three colleagues of such lethal cunning. But because I was running behind this morning in terms of writing the script, I didn't get a chance to write my usual long, torturous intros. So here's Helen O'Hara. She's geeky. Here's Phil DeSimley. He likes art films. And here's Ali Plum. He's got hair. Uh, fantastic. So, guys. Three colleagues of such lethal cunning yeah. that... Yeah, but uh, Sean Connery never what? finishes that line in uh, Indiana Jones and Last Crusade, which is what I'm referring to. Oh, it's still... He, goes, I feel he, like... he says, three challenges of such lethal cunning. And then he never finishes the sentence. Mm-hmm. And you're going, let what? Let what, Sean? Uh, no, I'm doubly on tender hooks. I just, I need to know that what. All right, well, if anyone can think of a, a new intro Thank for you guys, that would, that would be great. That's Helen O'Hara. This is Phil DeSemlin. Hello, Phil. Hi, Chris. How are you? Very well. Good, good, good. And Ali, how are you? I'm well, hello. Excellent, excellent. Uh, now the formalities are out of the way. Uh, time to pop on with your questions. You've sent in some belters this week. I like this first one. This okay. is a good one. Helen, perhaps you could put this in context, but it is from at Brightspark, who asks, what order would you, in capital letters, put all the Star Trek films in, including Galaxy Quest? Now, this comes from a big Star Trek convention that took place last week in Las Vegas. And there, the superfans voted for, you know, the order of the Star Trek films uh, from best to worst. And rather shockingly, they put Star Trek Into Darkness in last place, which means they put it below... Wrath of Khan. Well, yes, they put it below Wrath of Khan. First Contact. Yes, okay, but they also put it below the abominable, the well-nigh unwatchable Star Trek V: The Final Frontier, which uh, which is is really a bit of a a bit of a statement. I don't think it's anywhere near that bad because honestly, Star Trek V. Have you seen it, people? Does that imply that? the Trekker yeah. Star Trek community is losing faith with the franchise no I think it means that they just didn't like what this film did which was you know to some degree rehash a previous and very successful Star Trek film Wrath of Khan did of course come in the number one spot which I think is inarguable and if anyone do- of you do try to argue it I will of course have to kill you so um, so yeah I mean Wrath of Khan for me is absolutely the best I would say Final Frontier is the worst uh, obviously, mm. the motion picture is still is also very, very close to the bottom for the uniforms, if nothing else. Although the rest of it's incredibly boring. All right, let's do this as a group. Okay. Okay. So I think we can all agree that Insurrection's number one, right? From the top. Okay, Ratha Khan. <laughs> there you go. Ratha Khan. But is, is there a case to be made for First Contact? Uh, there's a case to be made for First Contact in the number two or three spot, sure. Okay. But not not better than Khan. Come on. I've only seen that one, and I've seen searching for <laughs> searching for Spocky Man. Searching, searching for Spocky Man. Is that it? It's all you've seen, and the JJ yeah. Abrams. and the JJ Abrams. I've seen Galaxy Quest. They put Galaxy Quest in there because of Galaxy Quest. That a lot of Trekkers feel that it is a Trek film in spirit. Uh, obviously not really. But it, it got it, what did they place on the well, list? You know, originally it was actually they made a strong case for it being, it being number one, and it, it did come close. But it ended up right in the middle of the list, in about the number five or six spot, sort of dividing the good from the bad. Frankly, okay. <laughs> um, I think a Galaxy Quest yeah is, should be up in the in the very top tier. I have a disinteresting fact, which I may well <laughs> delete when I edit this, but. First Contact was nominated for the Best Makeup Oscar, but lost out to The Nutty Professor. Why that one specifically, prosthetically? Oh, the, Why the first Borg. contact? Yeah, Borg. because of the Borg. Mm. Yeah. See, I haven't seen it. 
Oh, but you see, if you lose that to Rick Baker, then there's no shame in that. Mm. Have you seen both Nully Professor films? No. We were having this discussion yesterday when we got confused between is it the absent minded professor and mm-hmm. the nutty professor? Yeah. And you had an interesting statistic. Oh, you've got, you got another spot. disinteresting fact. Go on. Yeah, but it's not about this, it's about the nutty professor. Go on, go on. This is a freewheeling podcast, man. The Nutty Professor was released in 1963. It had a sequel in 2008, which means that there was a 45-year gap between the original and the sequel. The sequel was a direct-to-DVD animation made in Canada. It starred Jerry Lewis again as the Nutty Professor, and it holds the record for the longest time between two sequels where the lead actor played the same lead character. Holy cow. That's an awesome fact. That's a good fact. Were they waiting for the technology to catch up with the comedy? I think they were waiting for the fact that Jerry Lewis, I guess got a bit bored and decided to do it it's literally him and some people <laughs> in, a, in a room just being nutty and professory amazing uh, okay Star Trek okay Rather Khan very quickly Rather Khan yep. number one I think we can all agree probably what how many good Star Trek films are there but out of 12 um, okay well The Undiscovered Country is very good uh-huh. where are we putting Abrams uh, original Star Trek uh, up there okay um, yep. so there's the, uh, the Undiscovered Country The Wrath of Khan uh, the 2009 Star Trek probably The Voyage Home probably top half Voyage Home top half um, Search for Spock lower top half Search for Spock only decent odd number one until Abrams Star Trek would Pretty you much, say yeah. so let's say okay so Rathacan First Contact Galaxy Quest Galaxy Quest <laughs> Star Trek Star Trek then uh, Undiscovered Country Undiscovered Country then The Voyage Home sure then Search for Spock then Generations Generations mm. wasn't terrible it wasn't mm. good though we should put Generations above well, it definitely comes above Insurrection and Nemesis. Although right, I have a soft okay. spot for Nemesis. All right, Generations, yeah. Then the motion picture. Oh, no, f- no. further down. Further down for yeah, the motion picture. Yeah. I like the motion picture. I it's would got, put the got, motion it's picture. It's got a vibe. It's a no. vibey film, man. Like, Nemesis comes above. Nemesis, Nemesis comes does above. not come above it motion picture. It absolutely does. Okay, Nemesis comes above motion picture. We've lost everybody now. Uh, <laughs> Phil has tuned out. But that's, uh, we can agree that Wrath Khan, First Contact, Galaxy Quest, and J.J. Abrams' sure. original Star Trek. So I want to watch First Contact next because I'm looking for the next one. To see after those two that yes. I've seen already. Oh, we didn't put um, Into Darkness in, a, in that list anywhere. Is that top half, lower half for you? I would say lower half personally. Phil, uh, of the four you've seen, where does it where does it come? Uh, the oh, it's better than Search for Spock. It's better than Search for Spock. I thought. Okay. Yeah. I, I agree. I'd actually put it kind of in the mid to high. I think once people you know untwist their panties, they might realise it's actually well a, a, an enjoyable film, even mm. if it does perhaps dance on a uh, classic as well. Yeah, I think it falls apart towards the end a little bit, but it's, it's fun. It's okay. It's good. Yeah. Uh, okay, moving on. At C. Ginge asks, uh, following the great American tradition, uh, which sketch character, slash British or American, uh, do you think deserves their own film? Interesting. Mm. I would like to put forward a character which may or may not work in a cinematic world, but I love enough for it to be a good suggestion, at least. It is from Snuffbox, and it is Matt Berry's character. <laughs> if you remember Snuffbox, it was a very, very dark BBC Three comedy. Do you remember in the early days of BBC Three when they really invested in things that were quite edgy and out there, as the hip daddios call it, things like monkey dust? Snuffbox was that kettle of fish where Rich Fulcher and... Matt Berry, who you may or may not know, met on The Mighty Boosh, did a sketch show. And one of the sketches that Matt Berry was involved in was going up to these girls that he'd meet in the street and he'd kind of spray a little bit of sweet scent in his mouth and walk up to them and try and chat them up and say, look, this is how you do it, lads. 
walk up, start talking to this girl who's walking down the street carrying a goldfish, a kind of mini aquarium in in her hands. And there's a little goldfish swimming along. And he goes, hey, so uh, can I carry this for you? And she goes, oh, thank you so much. You're so gentlemanly. Oh, I thought, uh, you know, this sort of thing was dead. Thanks so much. Chivalry. Great. And he's like, yeah, it's no problem. So where am I taking this? To my boyfriend's flat. We're moving in. Fuck you! And then drops <laughs> the goldfish bowl on the floor. It smashes everywhere. And he runs down the street. And he does this like three or four times. This girl's looking at a um, at houses and estate agents. Fuck you! And then throws the pot plant she has in her hand into this Porsche that's just next to her. And the final one, which really makes me laugh, is when he's in a bar and he, he carries this big tray of drinks to a uh, group of people. And this girl goes, um, you know, obviously mentions the boyfriend, does the boyfriend drop. He throws the drinks on the floor, shouts, fuck you. And then goes to the barman, whiskey! <laughs> If you can see that as a film, you're probably, you know, got a better scriptwriting mind than I do. But I would love to see Matt Berry get his own movie. I find him very, very funny. I think I listen in part to Absolute Radio just because he does the stings and jingles. He's a very amusing man. And as I'm doing a lot of facts this week, in Dread, last year's Dread, you can hear the Snuffbox theme tune twice. It is used out of context when... Donald Gleeson, his character, the nerd up in the little, like, watching the CCTV station, when he's there, he listens to the Snuffbox theme tune, just for no particular reason. Look out for it when you next watch the film. As you probably remember for our review of it, we um, quite liked it. It's a good movie. Uh, listen to the lyrics. You thought it was gold, but it was bronze. You can hear that distinctly. Cool. What about Buckles, Adam Buxton's Countryman? Countryman, yeah, Phil and I really love Countryman. This is an online sketch that Anna Buxton does of Adam and Joe fame, where he essentially speaks like an upper class twit <laughs> and uh, just blunders around the Norfolk countryside, pointing out the bleedingly obvious and making up animals like tree badgers that live up in a big tree and make noises like. Um, is there a film in Ken Corda? I think a film documentary about fake films. Yeah. I would love Ken Corda to do that. That would be interesting. Peter Serafinovich is working on a script for Mr. Brian Butterfield which I'd be very interested to see if that, that works because obviously sketch characters are designed for two minutes little stints and it's very very hard to stretch them out to 90 minutes as a lot of SNL's uh, history has shown in the past. Wayne's World's in the credit column but there's an awful lot in the debit column. And MacGruber is a good example. And MacGruber oh. No come on. You're the only I know you, you are the only person who loves that film. No I don't love that film. I, d- I really didn't like that film but it made me, there's about four belly laughs in it. Four brilliant brilliant jokes that make me think that a sequel which Will Forte may be working on, he's trying to get it off the ground there's there's mileage in a MacGruber sequel. The the MacGruber sketches on SNL are genius, and the character didn't quite translate to the big screen. But there are uh, some amazing jokes in that. <laughs> the sex scene, just <laughs> the sex scene is brilliant. Um, yeah, I'd love to see the uh, Brian Butterfield film uh, get off the ground if possible. I'm a huge fan of uh, the Canadian sketch troupe, uh, Kids in the Hall, and I'd love to see. Uh, uh, you know, they've they've all uh, moved on a little bit. Uh, in terms of years but uh, I'd like to see their character the head crusher which is essentially a man played by uh, Mark McKinney who is a somewhat antisocial person whose uh, one thing is that uh, there would be a nice shot of someone in the foreground and you know people enjoying their day and then suddenly this f- these two fingers will lurch into frame 
and frame their heads and then it's a man going yeah look at you going about your day hey but I crash your head I crash your head and uh, that sketch somehow ran for about five series <laughs> and uh, but it is very very funny how would it run for 90 <laughs> minutes Chris well in one of the sketches his fingers get broken by some bullies and he has to <laughs> he has to train his fingers back to full fitness and it's a very very funny sketch do you remember Big so like Train where they had the sketch where the man had massive fat hands I mean, there's no movie in that, but that suddenly reminded me of when the guy gets... His wife hates him, and he's got these massive hands with fingers the size of, like, you know, toy trains. And he says, oh, I've got you this present. It's a Blackberry. And the guy just stares at his wife, just going, I hate you. <laughs> I think as we've got John Cleese on the podcast, we should mention some Python. They, they are unique in the way that they have released movies, too, technically, that were essentially compilations of sketches and now for something completely different and the meaning of life which proved that if you have a good enough quality series of sketches and you have enough presence on the world stage you can release movies that are just sketches mm. of course you could argue that uh, the Holy Grail is a compilation of sketches as well With strung together by like, the thinnest plot Anchorman Anchorman has a little bit of that too a little bit of that yeah. a little bit of that maybe slightly more coherence mm. Kentucky fewer. Fried Movie if we're talking mm. yeah, yeah, compilation absolutely. sketches absolutely I would like to know more about Nudge Nudge Wink Wink. I'd like to know what they do. I'd like them to be best friends. <laughs> they make they make friends in that bar. It's very awkward. Uh, but they become buddies, and one teaches the other one about uh, the birds and the bees. Uh, upper class Twitter of the year. Mm. John Cleese. Because it's, it's got that mixture of the funny walks and them just going, more, 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 and falling over. Graham Chapman was absolutely spectacular in that, the way he could fall over backwards by kind of jumping, hopping, and then skipping backwards at the same time, and then just head planting just <laughs> into the floor. Uh, that's some quality comedy. Uh, I think the uh, Ministry of Silly Walks is a, a good basis for a, a film. You know, imagine the, the, the government building in which that, that department operates. What other departments are in that are in that same building? That'd be, that'd be, that could be quite funny. They could cross it over the complaints department sketch, so that's yes. the same building. Absolutely. I'm looking for an argument. Uh, yeah. No, you're not. It's just a series of disagreements. Yeah, Harry Enfield was going to say it's weird that he hasn't really brought anything to the big screen, but then I remembered Kevin and Perry go large, which I had managed to forget. Um, but it's, it's it's weird. Over the last few years, we've had people like uh, Keith Lemon come to the big screen, and that's a character that should have been shot in the head a long time ago. And so there are some really genuinely brilliant characters in The Fast Show, for example, that I would have loved to have seen. I think from The Fast Show, remake Goal with Julio Giordio. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you remember Julio Giordio was kind of loosely inspired by I think Faustino Espria, the Colombian for hard party in Colombian. And the idea that this footballer would go and live in Newcastle and maintain his kind of his, his Spanish but combine it with some local sort of Geordie. <laughs> so he'd be interviewed and he'd be like shagging a porn star he'd throw all this apologies for my Spanish there for any Spanish listeners apologies that was for Spanish <laughs> <laughs> don't apologies for my Geordie just apologies in general but that would be amusing it would certainly be funnier than goal yeah if you haven't seen the fast show go yeah, check it out forgive the impression just watch it on YouTube the pinnacle of, uh, of modern British sketch comedy I would say I think people forget that Ali G as a character was a sketch character yeah. and he got given his own show uh, on Channel 4 then he was given his own movie which does not hold up I mean it didn't at the time but it really doesn't now but it, it's amazing that that was the thing that gave us Borat which I love so it's, mm. it's funny how these things work often it's just a case of giving people a shot yeah. it's not really a sketch but I would love to see a Garth Marenghi movie oh that'd yeah be amazing that'd be a fantastic oh yeah or a Rick Douglas movie for that matter and frankly you could do it you know on a, a tiny budget yeah. Um, which you know would make it better, not yeah. worse. 
Yeah, I think we talked about that last week as well, didn't we, in this sitcoms thing? But yeah, just a Garth Marenghi movie, please, if you're listening to this. Matt Holness, Richard Iowati, Matt Berry, in fact, and uh, Alice Lowe. Uh, at Rob Movie Reviews asks, what, in your opinion, is the greatest intro to a character in a film? Ooh, another good question. Oh, <laughs> Finger, uh, uh, Phil do doesn't it. have fingernails and we don't have a blackboard but I believe he's trying to recreate Quint's entrance in Jaws no no Joel Grey in Cabaret <laughs> <laughs> is my favourite but yeah of course Quint in Jaws is fantastic <laughs> you know when someone's introduced orally before you see them you know it's pretty cool weirdly enough I quoted that intro or paraphrased it in when I was asking people for quotes uh, for questions for the podcast oh. on Twitter you all know me you all know how I earn a living that's it Mm -hmm. yeah I have a few uh, (laughs) yeah how do you earn a living yeah (laughs) well I'd rather not say (laughs) Um, I have a few here actually Um, Captain Jack Sparrow uh, stepping off his sinking ship Uh uh, is rather favourite I like Tyler Durden the fact that he turns up subliminally throughout the movie before he appears properly well of course Helen uh, Tyler Durden is in the movie right from the very start because that is uh, if uh, that's said Norton's well, character's yes, name absolutely it probably uh, is Chris yes well of course yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway yeah. Uh, Jessica Rabbit uh, you know with leg first if you remember mm-hmm. and similarly uh, Sugar Cane in Some Like It Hot is introduced um, well bottom first frankly my word Racy Pony Rider, uh, similar thing. Ooh. Oh, that's racy. Ooh. That's racy. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly LeBrock in Weird Science is quite racy as well. <laughs> what's happened to this podcast? It's not it's, it's just, oh, I don't know what's happened. Nudge, nudge, oh, wink, oh, wink. Oh. Yeah. Talking a bit cream pie. Um, yeah, Kelly LeBrock in Weird Science. Weirdly, uh, I wish Nick was here because he could tell us Kelly LeBrock calling him seven times on his mobile story, but alas. Oh, that's amazing. He yes. can't be with us today. No, he, he never <laughs> called her back. <laughs> yes. Like, you didn't watch Weird Science. We, we should point out that Nick is sick and he's not dead. The way Phil <laughs> just said, sadly, he can't be with us today. Uh, but he's just he's just sick, a little bit pukey. If my brother did actually pass away, I would miss at least one podcast, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to know. Slacker. Which one? An immediate one or three months down the line or six months? Or, you know, oh, it's hard to say. Would you pencil it in? Whatever he felt say. like it. Yeah. Just to get out Joe free card. He just jazzes it. See yeah. How it goes. I yeah. do my my answer to this because the question is what is what in what in your opinion is the greatest intro to a character in a film? And for me, in my opinion, it's the dude in the Big Lebowski, uh, as Sam Elliott draws, you know, just some of the most laconic lines, and you know that the Coen brothers wrote every single word, every single dot, every single you know I was about to say exclamation mark, but there is no exclamation mark in the way Sam Elliott says these words. Sometimes there's a man. I won't say a hero because what's a hero? Hmm. But sometimes there's a man, and I'm talking about the dude here. Sometimes, uh, there's a man, <laughs> <laughs> a man from this time and this place, and he fits right in, and that's the dude in Los Angeles. But yeah, when he goes buys some half and half, sprays it over his beard, he pays for it by check. <laughs> it costs sixty nine cents. Quick quiz. What is the date on the check when he writes the oh 69 cent God. check? Is it forward no dated? And I'll give you a bonus point if you can tell me what animal is on the checkbook. A raccoon. A rocket raccoon. A beaver. It's a big blue whale. And the date, and this is why it's interesting, I thought you might know, is it was September the 11th, 1991. Ooh. So conspiracy theories <gasps> abound. 
and then he looks up at the Iraq war oh, footage really? and looks back down at it and September the 11th it could have been a coincidence it was a coincidence but <laughs> you, <laughs> Ali you're full of amazing you're like we love this stuff what often. useful information have you pushed on my brain with this stuff today useful yeah none none good we shouldn't obviously mention it but mini me with send in the clone and Dracula yeah which one anyone any one of them any one of them oh, the Christopher, Christopher Lee one makes Dracula 2000 yes yes Jerry Butler's finest moment. Dead and loving it. I'm Dracula! That's what I'm pretty <laughs> sure there's a line in the film. Martin Landau's um, Bella Lugosi and Edward, when he's in the coffin, he's just measuring the coffin out. That is him. amazing. That's great. I love that one. Going back to Joel Grey, Cabaret's one of my favourite films of all time, and I just think that intro, intro is spectacular. Mm. He kind of... It, it, it's such an amazing entree into this really kind of slightly off-centre slightly grotesque hedonistic world and he has this leer but this charisma at the same time and the, all the makeup that cakes his face as he introduces this this and it is literally welcome you know welcome bienvenue welcome uh, to the audience you know as well as the the uh, as well as the um, cabaret attendees yeah. party goers and um, it's just an it's just a plunge into this unforgettable kind of universe that Bob Fosse creates and so brilliantly choreographed as well and Incredibly, I don't think there's a supporting actor who's more deserving of the Oscar than, than uh, Joel Grey for that part. I got it's phenomenal. The uh, serious and uh, heartfelt. That was I, w- I wasn't expecting that. It's beautiful, 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 Phil. <gasps> beautiful. No, it was good. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's there's tons of these. I mean, people yeah. people often write in going, "How did you miss this person? That that person?" Obviously, we're doing a lot less off the top of our heads, um, so we don't expect these lists to be exhaustive or definitive. So, but you know, I'll throw in a few in. Uh, Orson Welles in The Third Man. Um, yes. You know, the, the revelation of Harry Lyme is yeah. is, is genius. Uh, I would also throw in <laughs> the revelation of Leslie Nielsen as Frank Drebin in The Naked Gun uh, <laughs> when he reveals that he's not uh, actually a, a waiter. At the uh, the meeting of the world's biggest bad guys, but it is in fact Frank Drebin from Police Squad. Uh, I thought which, so, <laughs> which, which I love. Um, it, it's hard for me to look beyond uh, the introduction of harmonica in Once Upon a Time in the West, which is just brilliant. But roughly a seven minute long sequence of builds and builds and builds to Charles Bronson's arrival, uh, which is fantastic. I'm a huge fan of the original Blade, and Blade has a really badass entrance in in that movie and a nightclub filled with. Uh, vampires and you just know that this man is going to kick some serious booty um, but I'd say arguably the greatest character intro of all time the alien mm. didn't see that one coming <laughs> so there you go that's my list anyone else I'm, I'm still just thinking about Sam Elliott's moustache <laughs> <laughs> indie of course I think what's interesting is a lot of these yeah. ones like Vader I mean they made these films they didn't know they were going to become as but and yet they're so confident those particular moments those grace notes, the Vader coming through the door, you know, the, the fact that a lot of these things happen, the characters sort of introduced from off off camera. You mm. just see, you know, like well, Han you Solo. mentioned Orson Welles in in, in uh, the Third Man. You know, mm. he's veiled in this sort of chiaroscuro lighting and in in the shadows. But you can't imagine any other way that you meet this shadowy figure now. Mm. But making the film, Carol Reed, you know, you weren't thinking in terms of iconic imagery. Well, he must have been. He must have been. He must have been. The way he framed that, the way he shot that, he must have been thinking that way. But it's interesting how sometimes some great characters are introduced in a very, very throwaway, almost half offhand way. Like Han Solo, for example, in Star Wars, you know, which is which gives Luke a big build up. It gives uh, you know Leia a big build up. It gives Vader a big build up. And then Han Solo, possibly the coolest character <laughs> in the movie, is kind of just 
introduced almost in the background of a shot. We see him first in the background of a shot, and then it's just kind of he's just sitting down. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm Han Solo, Captain the Millennium Falcon. You know, it's it's it's, it's interesting. That. He's Han Solo. Why try harder? Why try <laughs> harder? All right, moving on. Uh, very last question is from at FTW Stew uh, for the Wind Stew, who asks: Empire has a heavy presence on Twitter. Heavy man. Uh, so, which movie personality do the team most enjoy following? I'm going to be really obvious immediately and say The Rock, who mm-hmm. I just find hilarious. Um, his, his tweets have been less consistently hilarious since his early days were, were just brilliant. But now he's, you know, occasionally being sincere as well. But I, I just find him... I, d- I don't know if it's a, if it's a, a meta commentary on, on how he's perceived or genuinely sincere, but <laughs> either way, I love him. Um, Steve Martin to go is also one of the f- funniest guys and he manages... Even when he's kind of doing self-promotion, does it in such a funny and an, a self-deprecating way that I'm just amazed by him all the time. I love how you discuss The Rock's tweets almost like the way a lot of critics discuss Woody Allen's movies. <laughs> I like the early funny ones. They but, are self-referential, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, he knows what he's doing. I mean, there's life in the old dog, yeah. Um, I think uh, there's, a, there's a tendency to to come across quite snobbish when you when you live on Twitter as a lot of us do and you know there is a tendency to have a pot kettle black situation because I'm sure so, I'm sure people who follow me find some of the things I tweet annoying uh, but Joss Sweden I think gets it just right because he's very infrequent with his tweets he doesn't do it that often and when he does it's a bit of a oh that was a good one very rare thing to have somebody who thinks first and then second and then mm. third before tweeting because by God, there are some people online. And when, this, the question isn't, who do you find annoying? But there are people, there are personalities that have a tendency to either retweet their own praise or just mm. tweet, 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 tweet. Uh, yeah, retweeting and praise is a bit of a bugbear for me. I can understand why people have movies out, they're excited about it and they want people to know, but there's kind of a feeling that if we're following you, we follow you because you, we think you're cool already and we know your movie is good and we would like your movie, so why are you telling us again? Yeah. But uh, that's just... Uh, that's just it, it blows over very quickly. They could learn from Damon Lindelof, who only tweets abuse. He retweets only <laughs> he the abuse he, he gets. Yeah. I love that you he know. does that. <laughs> You're such a hack. Prometheus sucked yeah. ass. He'll retweet that, but he's not going to retweet like, go man. <laughs> you rock. Yeah, no, precisely. Which is great. And I think, but I mean, Twitter is such a broad church and people use it. I mean, movie people use it for different things. Yeah. Some people are very like, you know, st- almost like studio publicity agenda driven in their tweets, which is kind of boring sometimes. Mm-hmm. Although when you've got a junket and you are checking the Twitter feed of the person you're about to interview and they're like, oh my God, only another six hours of this hell to go as you skip jauntily to meet them that's always a bit of a win sailor take her outer <laughs> I really but, liked uh, Mark Miller the other week when he was starting to do the kick ass 2 chunk it and he was, he was basically going I don't know what actors are complaining about this is brilliant to get 15 hours of talking about myself and I get a free mini bar this is awesome <laughs> he said, I'm, I'm honestly going to tell actors to shut up after yeah, this you get these what are you moaning about tiny tiny croissant <laughs> um, yeah it's interesting if you, we actually don't we follow a weird cross section I'm just looking here at our uh, empires uh, the, the people we follow from Empire, the Empire account it's a weird cross section of people but uh, I really like uh, Paddy Considine who's, who's come to Twitter of late with a very uh, funny attitude and every morning he posts a weird picture that he's found on Google Images uh, which is which is very funny so I'd recommend following Paddy uh, at Paddy underscore Constantine I like Patton Oswald. he's very funny I think sorry at Paddy Constantine sorry I would recommend people just go to our Empire Twitter page and then see what we're following and just tick everyone there. I think that would be my best suggestion because we're going to forget people that we do love but we just couldn't think of. So go do that. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, okay, so time now for our first interview. Jeff Wadlow is the man who was hand-picked by Matthew Vaughn to both write and direct a follow-up to Kick-Ass, the cunningly titled 
Kick-Ass 2. The American director was previously known for Never Back Down, but Kick-Ass 2 has already propelled him into the big time and links with Fox's adaptation of the X-Force comic book. He came in recently to speak to Ali about following up Fawn's effervescent original. Getting started. So today we are joined in the Empire Pod Booth by Jeff Wadlow, the director of Kick Ass 2, amongst other things. And it's a pleasure to have you in. Uh, I'm very excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Alec. My big question is Kick Ass 2, Kick Ass 1, directed by Matthew Vaughn. The great Matthew Vaughn. How do you get a gig as cool as this one? You have to be very, very lucky, um, which I, I feel like I am, having had the opportunity to make this movie. I, I, I met Matthew on a different project. Uh, a comic book adaptation called Bloodshot. Um, I pitched it to him over the phone, actually. I think he was in a train station or something. I hate pitching over the phone. But it went well. He really liked it. Uh, But then he started working on X-Men, so I decided to spec the script. I wrote it, and I sent it to him, and he uh, really liked it. Uh, In fact, I, I remember the conversation quite vividly. We were on the phone, and he said, the script is just like the pitch. And I said, yeah. And he said, so, uh, you do what you say you're going to do. And I'm like, yeah. And he said, do you want to do Kick-Ass 2? And I was like, yeah. Uh, so I, I just feel really fortunate that he, he responded to that script. And, uh, you know, I had to work my butt off after that. I, I actually talked quite a bit with him about it. But then things sort of slowed down and I didn't have a deal and nothing was happening. And I was just so excited about the project and so excited about, you know, seeing where we could take Dave and Mindy and Chris that I just sat down and wrote that script and, and sent it to him. And he was quite surprised that I, I took that leap of faith and, and wrote it without a deal. And he read it and he called me up and he said, you wrote the script? And I said, yeah. I said, it's really good. We should make it. I said, fantastic. Let's do it. You, you're making an adaptation that was a sequel to the film rather than a sequel to the comic. Right. So I finished the, uh, the first pass on the script. Uh, which was just an adaptation of the comic. And then I rewatched the uh, the movie like three or four times over one day, which was a, uh, a fun day indeed. And, uh, and so I had the characters' voices in my mind and all the, all the plot details, and, and that became sort of the, the foundation on which I, I rewrote the whole script mm-hmm. as just a sequel to the film. And then I did a third pass on it where I just sort of took a lot of my own ideas and, and things that I wanted to see just as a fan of the first one, um, and and, uh, and plug those into the script, and then that was the draft that I I sent Matthew. Uh, and what was interesting, there were some there were some moments in the comic that I discussed with Matthew and Mark that we all knew were going to be difficult to adapt because um, you know Mark Mark is the first one to admit that he does things in comics to get certain responses from his audience, elicit certain emotions. Um, that you don't necessarily have to do in a film. I mean, and it seems sort of obvious to say it out loud, but in a comic, you're not dealing with real people, right? It's representations of people. Whereas in a movie, I'm pointing a camera at real people. So you, you don't have to go quite as far or show quite as much to get an emotional response out of your audience. Like it takes a lot less to shock someone mm. when you're showing them a film than it does when they're reading a comic book. We are in the wonderful world of London. And where we are in the office, the Empire Towers, is just a stone's throw away from where you shot part of the film on Denmark Street. Some people call it Tin Pan Alley after the New York uh, Street, the same name. And that's where we have a, a, a big fight with both Kick-Ass and Hit-Girl and a bunch of goons in the UK. And it's a, it's a, it's a crazy feeling as a Brit to see that happen. Was it a bit of a, a highway act for you as well to make people not think, hey, we're in the UK? 
Yeah, I know it's it's a complete waste of time and money trying to make people think they're in New York City when you're not in New York City. You're like, why why are we doing this? Why can't we shoot in New York? And the reality is, it just you know, shooting in New York is is cost uh, prohibitive. And this people forget, like Universal's releasing the film, but it's still very much an independent film and a result of the uh, of the British independent film industry. I mean, other than the actors, you know, I'm the only American who worked on the film, um, and so you know, we had to shoot this alley sequence. And uh, we needed a, a, a sort of a skeevy <laughs> looking alley. And uh, it, it worked quite well. You know, it worked quite well. Um, it, was, it was a miserable couple days because we shot, gosh, when we shot sort of, I think it was November. So it was cold and wet. And it's, it's very funny in the film, you know, Dave is walking down a street and we're in Toronto where we shot most of our New York exteriors. And he turns a corner and you know we I, in Toronto I was like cut and we ended the day and then you know two months later we're in London uh, he comes around the corner and we pick it up and you're not supposed to be able to tell you know that we we crossed an ocean in that cut um, and I mean I can tell immediately because you know it goes from sunny and warm to suddenly <laughs> like it's like gray and you can see his breath but I don't think the audience ever knows well it's all about very strategically placed uh, taxi cabs selling both <laughs> Toronto and London as uh, as New York, that's that's the way to do it. And what's funny when we were shooting that sequence in the alley, uh, a bus would go by, the double decker red bus, and I'd be like, God, God damn it, can't we stop the? And I would be so upset. And then finally, after that happened like the third time, someone said to me, the tourist bus in New York are these like double decker red buses too. And I was like, that is true. Okay, roll camera. Here we go. You know, and didn't worry about it for the rest of the Get day. Get this guy a race. Yeah, <laughs> you got John Leguizamo, who I pronounced. His name entirely wrong. You butchered it. I just I destroyed yeah, it. You, I've, I've got a reputation on this podcast for saying everyone's name wrong. Well, no, it's it's actually a British thing. Most of the Brits pronounce it that way. And what's funny is I started saying it that way because I lived here for a year. I lived here from May 2012 to May 2013 making the movie. And again, the only American working on it. And so I actually started saying his name that way. And my girlfriend, when I got back to Los Angeles, was like, why are you saying John's name that way? And I was like, oh, yeah. I, I mean, like, I, it was hard to let it go because all of you Brits pronounce it as uh, Leguizamo. Yes, it's Leguizamo. Leguizamo. Leguizamo, yeah. I've got it. Thank you so much. No problem. He has some of the biggest laughs. You see in the trailer recently where he goes, isn't that a little bit extremely racist? Yeah. And and what's interesting, the line I wrote was, isn't that a little racist? And he wrote, he put the extremely or incredibly racist. I can't remember what, what word he used and it just changed the line and turned it into such a huge laugh and that's john in a nutshell he is just so funny and so present he's such a gifted performer now you mentioned earlier you pitched bloodlust as a kind of bloodshot bloodshot don't know why i say bloodlust that's a real freudian slip like <laughs> that's a terrible one um to matthew vaughan kind of out of the blue what is the current state of play there because you are a busy man now neither one of us is really working on that it, it's set up at sony neil moritz is producing it to be candid, I don't really know what's going on with it because I wrote it, they bought it. Uh, Matthew's not involved in it anymore, and you know I'm I'm working on other things. So I would love to see that movie get made one day because I I love the original comic and I, I think we had a fun take on it. But um, I don't really know what's going on with it. You've just given the script away, and it's it's in other people's hands. That's now. how Hollywood works, I'm afraid. <laughs> and the other the other script that people are fascinated by, and I've seen interviews talking about it already. And obviously, there's not a lot you can say because it's embryonic. But X-Force is the question mark for your next project, but at least in a writing capacity. Yeah, well, no, I mean, I'm again, like Kick-Ass 2, I'm, I'm writing it to make it. Um, you know, Bloodshot was probably one of the last things I, I hope I do just sort of as a writing gig. You know, I, I'm trying to, in many ways, pattern my career after Matthew, and I, I really only want to be 
writing things that I'm, I'm going to make. And that is definitely the plan with, with X-Force. It's just, it's in development right now. And, and for those of you who follow sort of the X franchise and, and what Fox has done in the past, I mean, they, they've commissioned some other scripts, you know, there was a Magneto one, there was an X-Men first class with Cyclops and Jean Grey. There was uh, there, obviously there's the Deadpool one that people are very aware of. And, and so I'm writing X-Force. I want to make it, but ultimately they got to decide if they want to make it. It's a tough one because you've got to satisfy this whole legion of fans. And then you've got the whole legion of film fans who already have their investment in there as well. I was wondering whether you had spoken to or been in any contact with Brian Singer with Days of Future Past. Because naturally there's some potential crossover with characters at least. And yeah. also timelines because that shit's fucked up. I'm very aware of both the the cinematic universe and the comic book universe i'm a huge fan um i bought x-force number one when it was on the stands when i was in high school and i've really enjoyed the uh the recent runs uh particular uh the the rick uh it's written remender but someone told me it was pronounced remainder the other day who knows i'm sure he does actually Uh, i really have enjoyed that run as well and I'm very aware of trying to tie it into the cinematic universe because I think it's a bummer when you just sort of ignore other movies. But at the same time, you know, they've given me permission to reimagine uh, certain characters. That's all I really can say because, you know, I, I signed a uh, NDA about Days of Future Past and that's, you know, going to be a very big, very exciting movie coming soon. So I can't really say much else without uh, revealing things about that film. So this does mean we can draw from that that you have you have read the script at least for Days of Future Past. I, I, can't, I'm not, I can't say anything can't about it. I literally that. can't say anything about it. What was your reaction when Jim decided to come out and say, I'm not going to be supporting this film? Here's the thing about Jim Carrey. We love him in movies because you never know what he's going to do or say. And I'm here to tell you that's true in real life, too. You pretty much never know what Jim Carrey is going to do or say. So I was as surprised as everyone else when I when I read those tweets. After they came out, I got on the phone with Matthew and Mark, and we talked, and and we decided that, that Mark should respond on our behalf, and he did. And I, I think he everything he said was was on point, and, and he said it quite eloquently, so I will not try to paraphrase him. I mean, I don't really know what else to say other than you know, I think he's fantastic in the movie. I think people should see the movie and they should judge for themselves. It's just a movie. And since I don't want to get on a, on my soapbox here, but since the dawn of time, uh, we've been telling stories around campfires about tribes in conflict and great hunters, you know, fighting, you know, dangerous beasts. And, and it's what we do as a society to kind of experience Danger and life or death situations without actually being in them. Roller coasters. Yeah, and so we're always going to do that. It's never going to go away. Um, it's part of being human and being alive. So I think when you talk about the depiction of violence in cinema, I think you're not really talking about the real problem. There we go. Thank you again, Jeff Woodley. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Moving news time now. What's it got in its movie news's pockets is my precious. Well, I have a not very exciting news story, but slightly exciting, uh, which is that a magician caper, Now You See Me, um, it was a bit of a sleeper hit this summer, and it 
is getting a sequel, apparently. So plans are being made now. Um, it was produced for about $75 million originally. It's apparently on track to make $275 million around the world, which is a big result for it. Um, so apparently they're, uh, they're going to be shooting uh, a new one next year. Uh, that does mean it'll probably be out in 2015, a.k.a. the year of megafilm death. Ooh, I'd avoid that. But, well, there's got to be a, there's got to be a week somewhere where there isn't a billion-dollar movie coming out. Probably. Maybe? Anyway, um, so we don't know anything about it yet. Um, all the negotiations uh, for the cast and, and crew returning have to wait until there's a script in place because we don't have it yet. If you've seen the film and you'd seen the ending, which I'm not going to discuss in any way, you will know that there's something there that they can work with in a sequel. It very much leaves the door open while mm-hmm. also providing some kind of closure. So, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens next. It, it will be. Uh, yeah, as you say, it's done incredibly well, that movie. Uh, it's it's really churning along in the UK. I mean, it's just past the, I think, the 10 or 11 million pound barrier at the UK box office, and it's just, just keeps going. Mm. People keep going. Yeah, it is a movie that, you know, that rewards multiple viewings I think so it's become eventually you see me <laughs> it <laughs> sort of has and to just me. to be clear if you haven't seen it the uh, really good cast as well Mark Ruffalo Jesse Eisenberg Isla Fisher Dave Franco uh, Woody Harrelson in there they were kind of uh, I guess the leads in the movie um, so you know definitely worth a look the lovely Melanie Laurent Melanie Laurent as well Melanie Laurent there we all are saying oh no movie about magic will work properly because movies are magic so you know, and how do you do we it? Are. And yet, here we are. And here we are. In the sequel. Sequel. What happens in the sequel, Helen? Um, magic. <laughs> yeah. So, more Expendables casting news. And I more. Probably, yeah, more. More of it. <sighs> yes. But, gird your loins, because it now has all major aging acting action stars in it, including now Mel Gibson and Antonio Banderas. Okay, has also joined the party, which starts in... Bulgaria very, very soon, I think. Fly Stallone is generating a lot of publicity around this film and Bruce Willis obviously dropped out. Harrison Ford signed up. Now Mel Gibson is back. And is this part of Mel Gibson's redemption <laughs> his latest strategy? His latest rehabilitation. I mean, he does have movies going on at the moment. A Machete Kills, I believe, is coming up soon. Um, so he's not like he's not working, but this is probably his most high-profile gig for a while. And... Um, you know, it could work to to kind of bring him back into out of the um, the doldrums. More people in Expendables three. I don't know yeah. what it's about. I don't know. Is it about anything? If it's going to be about anything in particular, just a lot of grenades going off and a lot of shooting explosions. But I will summarize the cast list at the moment. It is Schwarzenegger, Stallone, Terry Crews, Wesley Snipes, Dolph Lundgren, Harrison Ford, Harrison Ford. Twice. Gandalf, Bruce Forsyth, Sir Alex Ferguson, <laughs> the Jolly Green Giant. <laughs> Antonio Banderas, Mel Gibson, and Harrison Ford. He's in it twice. Bruce Forsyth is going to be amazing in that film. Uh, Bruce Forsyth. <laughs> Bruce Forsyth, yeah. 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 Because yeah. I was going to say, the British Expendables have been underrepresented so far mm-hmm. in the in the series. So it's good. I mean, you're trying to think about who, you know, do they get Lewis Collins, you know, Martin Shaw, perhaps? Who's the guy that uh, did um, Gladiators Ready from Contenders Ready? Oh, from the, the referee. Yeah. The referee, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, they could get John Fashanu. John Fashanu. Uh, perhaps uh, they, should, they could get him in to do that. That would be good. Think about Brucey's line as a kiss off line. Nice to see you. <laughs> to see you nice. <laughs> yeah. 
conveyor belt. It's a cuddly toy. It's a bomb. It's, it's yeah, it's an object. Yeah. Are any of them actually going to be expendable? I mean, it felt last time like everyone's agent had had negotiated so they'd be alive at the end of the film. Hey, I your, mean, your Hemsworth man, he was expendable. Yeah, because he was under thirty. I mean, I guess they're going to kill the under thirty guy that they also announced this week. But are they going to kill any of the stars? Well, whoever the bad guy is, presumably the bad guy is going to be Phil Mickelson. Phil Mickelson? Yeah. That's an unusual choice. <laughs> well, it's He's, an unusual film. Yeah. You don't want me saying so. They call me Lefty. <laughs> um, golf joke. Was <laughs> 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 below par. Another one. Oh my god! I'm on a roll. <laughs> anyway, um, they should have yeah. put Michael Caine in on this. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be fun. yeah, but he's in um, now. You see me, isn't he? They're in, they're, the, the recruitment policy of the Expendables is increasingly bit skew with. Uh, I guess Antonio Banderas has killed bunches of people before in, in Desperado and whatnot, but Gibson, I don't know. Has he? What's yeah. funny about this is weapon, that. Man. Yeah, but it's not really. A, yeah, even the weapon, he doesn't really plow through scores of henchmen. And Mad he, Max. It's just oh, it's just mind numbingly postmodern the whole Maverick. thing now, you know. Like when we first, when the first Expendables came around, I remember this clearly because you wrote Helen wrote this piece about how who was going to be in it, and there was talk of Sandra Bullock. We were so excited about this thing because it was so off the wall, crazy, and amazing to get all these like action stars that we love from the eighties back together. But like three years on, and the third film, and none of either of the films have been you know that much to write home about, and you're a bit like. Mm. It, it's this kind of weird experiment in meta casting has kind of, I think, reached a point the, the, of terminal sort of. The problem inertia. with the films is that that they you know they're not in on the joke that, we, you know, whenever it was first announced, it was going to be Stallone, Statham, Jet Li, and you know people like that. And you're going, this is amazing. Schwarzenegger in a cameo. This is amazing. You know, this is if this has its tongue in the in the right place, it's cheek. Hopefully, uh, then this could be fantastic. But it sadly it didn't. Both both films seem to have a an earnestness and a dourness that that really derails the whole thing. But it depends. Sometimes it appears like one of the characters definitely knows this is stupid, and then another character is like you say, totally po faced. Yeah, like the opening of Expendables two, where the you know with the the tank with things written on a knock knock, and it was cartoonish and over the top. And you thought, oh, actually, this is getting it. the tone is getting it. But then there's a whole thing with refugees and and the characters feeling something and I don't want you to feel anything I want you to shoot everything that's all I want you to do it's it's a bit like uh, it's a bit like the recent Fast and Furious movies the fun to an extent is is spotting who's taking it seriously and who isn't (laughs) but too many of them in the Expendables unlike the recent Fast movies too many of them are in you know the latter category The Rock is not taking it seriously The Rock is not taking it that's seriously That's fair to say Finn Diesel I think is taking it absolutely seriously yeah. for him this is his Shakespeare Whereas, Paul Walker doesn't know what to do <laughs> No but Ludacris and Tyrese are definitely in The Rock's camp you know yes. so that's kind of where it gets fun Well I love that Fast and Furious in that aspect because I feel like a few people involved with the gang are quite grateful they're just kind of there going oh I'm glad I signed up <laughs> 10 years ago to this because this is run thank, and run Thank you Thank you Finn you know, every other day you just go, Finn, you're a great bloke. Can I just say, you're a great bloke. Please don't kill me in this. You yeah. are a great bloke. Uh, but yeah, that's it's totally bonkers. But I think if there's one person in Expendables 2 who was in on the joke, it was Chuck Norris. Because the way, he, when he came on, I felt like surely he must, surely he must be in on the joke. And then you hear that he totally wasn't. He was just, <laughs> he, he, for me, it was he just went so far one way. That he fell out the other side. Yeah. No swearing. Like, what was with that? Just the man's... The man's a straight See, is Chuck Norris back as Lone Ranger, Wolf Ranger, whatever his name was? Lone Wolf McQuaid. He was not called. He was not called that. 
Nor was he called. I think Forsyth has got that role. No, I don't think he is back there. That he hasn't been mentioned. I should just mention my stories quickly. Oh, yes. Uh, Ron Burgundy, um, (laughs) sorry to burst your bubble, guys. He's a fictional character, but that hasn't stopped him, Alan Partridge style, from releasing his own novel, his own autobiography. It's called, in capital letters, Let Me Off at the Top. And the uh, subtitle is My Classy Life and Other Musings. It will be out in November the 19th. That's a month before the release of Anchorman 2, The Legend Continues, which comes out on December the 20th. Mm. It's got uh, quite a fun press release, uh, which I will quickly quote something from Ron himself. It says, I don't know if it's the greatest autobiography ever written. I'm too close to the work. I will tell you this much. The first time I sat down and read this thing, I cried like a goddamn baby, and you can take that to the bank. So I feel like this is going to be similar to kind of Stephen Colbert's... What, how does it go again? Um, uh, I am America, yeah, and, so and so can, can you. you. There you go. I think it's going to be a similar kind of bombastic bollocks over the course of, hopefully, probably about 100 pages. Uh, Hugh Grant is another story I'd like to bring up. He is joining uh, the man from Uncle, and in a twist of ironic fate, he will be playing a spy... This is a man who has been desperate to get people to not invade his privacy and not spy on him. So there's a certain amount of, oh, I see what you're doing there, as he plays the head of British naval intelligence in Guy Ritchie's uh, adaptation of The Man from Uncle. It will star as as, as the two leads, who I can't pronounce, uh, Napoleon Solo, that's one I could, and Kuryakin, I think I got that right. Ilya Kuryakin. Henry Cavill will be the former, Army Hammer will be the latter. Uh, it also has uh, Alicia Vikander, you might recognise from... Royal Affair. <laughs> Royal Affair or Anna Royal Affair and Anna Krenner, both very good. And uh, it's being written by Guy Ritchie and the Sherlock Holmes collaborator Lionel Wigram, uh, following an earlier version by Scott Z. Burns. I'm excited about this because I love Guy Ritchie and I feel like this is the kind of thing where he could do what he can't do at Bond because no one would let him at it. This was going to be the Soderbergh film for a while, wasn't it? And With then, Clooney, yeah. With and, Clooney. And Scott Z. Burns is the only Scott connection because he wrote yeah. Side Effects. And Contagion. And all sorts of other stuff for lovely Steven Soderbergh. The Burgundy thing is interesting. Uh, do we know whether Will Ferrell has written this himself, or has he had a ghost written for him with Adam McKay, perhaps? Or how do we do we know anything about it at the moment? Or the no, this for me was a bit of a surprise. It just kind of, kind of was announced as a press release. Mm. I think they're trying to build up a little bit of a groundswell, talking about the movie coming out later this year. And this is a very clever way of doing it because obviously it's a tie-in, but it also gets people talking about. It's a new release of the the month before, and you are excited about Anchorman too. I know I'm going to buy this book. I know what I'm like. I will get it because I want to get myself into the Anchorman 2 world. Um, so, yeah, hopefully it won't spoil anything that happens in the film. I doubt they do that. I doubt they will. I think it'll be on everyone's Christmas list. It's an easy thing to get for the comedy lover in your life. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it isn't clear who's who's writing it. Um, it's all kind of dressed up in that. It, it, it's, it's taking its joke and bringing it into the real world. Mm. He is a real character. So they're not saying, of course, this was ghostwritten by Adam McKay, although hopefully they will in the future. Of course, the, the timeline is even more screwed with Ron Burgundy than it is with, say, Alan Partridge, who had a similar thing. Because, uh, you know, if you figure it, he's in his 30s or 40s by the time of the, by the time of both movies. So he would now be, what, 70? <laughs> 75? Maybe even knock it on 80? How old is Baxter? Baxter, I'm, I'm, I would imagine Baxter would have shuffled off to that great new show in the sky. That. If he can eat a whole wheel of cheese, and that's no problem, he is a super dog. He can also survive being drop-kicked off a bridge. He can he speak can. with bears. I think he's a better dog than most and may last longer than other dogs. Good, good. I know he's definitely an anchorman too, played by a new dog called Quince. You're not the only one with interesting facts in this podcast, my friend. The difficult thing is that the end, the coder of Anchorman, gave four very funny jokes, and they obviously couldn't get them because they were too funny. Brick was going to be uh, 
you know, an advisor to the Bush administration. You know, Brian Fantana, you know, ended up hosting a, a, a TV show called, I think, Porn Island. Um, it's stuff like that. So that, for me, is one of the funniest bits because you kind of you say goodbye to the movie and you've really enjoyed this world, revisiting it for the 17th time. And you know, because of the sequel, that none of that is true. It may yet be. Maybe. Let's hold the faith. Keep the faith, as Bon Jovi once advised us. <laughs> he was a wise man indeed. Second interview now, John Cleese is one of those guests who almost needs no introduction, not least because he's achieved so much in his career that any introduction would be about 30 minutes long. Already I'm 30 seconds in. I haven't even mentioned Monty Python or Faulty Towers or Fish Caught Wanda or Clockwise or the Bond films or his moustache or loads of other things. The man is a bona fide comedy legend and he came in recently to talk to James Dyer and Nick DeSimlian about his role in Disney's Planes and much, much more. If you want to hear hot gossip about Marion Lemers, this is a place for you. John Cleese, welcome to the Empire Podcast. How are you? Nice to be with you. We're chatting about this Planes movie, right? The Planes movie, yes, absolutely. Would you consider yourself to be an enthusiastic flyer? No. (laughs) No, I am so old. I can remember the first time I flew where, of course, there was no security. Can you believe that? (laughs) There was no security at all. You just wandered through and you showed your ticket and you showed your passport and they got you on the plane. It was extraordinary. It was a pleasure to fly in those days. I now find it a miserable experience, almost without exception. I, I can fly and be comfortable on Singapore, on Cathay, and what's the other one? Oh, uh, United Emirates. Those three airlines I'm comfortable with. Every other airline, it's a form of slow, gentle torture. Everyone's had one particularly hellish experience on a plane. Have you had a particularly bad flight? I've had several thousand. (laughs) And I don't think one stands out any more than the others. But uh, I always think that if only they would listen to the cabin crew, who were on the whole rather smart and friendly people, they could run the airlines much better. But it's as though... They think that they know. The answer is, if, you ever, if you're running a business, you want to know how the mailroom should operate, go and talk to the people in the mailroom. It's perfectly simple. <laughs> and there are so many stupidities in the way that they run aircraft nowadays that I just dread every time I get on one. I really do. Some actors, uh, Harrison Ford, several others, have got into flying planes themselves. Has that ever appealed to you? Much too difficult and much too dangerous. For a start, I tend to be a bit dreamy. I'm a little bit the sort of typical artistic type, a little bit away in his own thoughts and a bit daydreaming. And I've always got a perfectly interesting show going on in my head without needing a great deal of stimulation. And I love the idea that someone who's spent his life learning how to fly the fucking thing is going to get me there safely, you know. That's, I'm, I'm happy with that. The thought of having to do it myself is appalling. It'd be like sort of doing brain surgery on yourself. Leave it to the professionals. Leave it to the professionals, absolutely. I saw Michael Palin last month doing a talk about his travels around India. Have you uh, been anywhere particularly exotic, or do you prefer to...? Well, I I think I like being in places, and I think Michael likes travelling there. There's quite a difference between them. Usually getting there is not terribly interesting. I mean, there are moments when that's not been true. I took a train once for Vancouver up to Banff, and that was one of the most beautiful train rides I ever... Is that the Rocky Mountaineer? Yeah, 
was really stunning, and I was going to a TV festival in Banff. But on the whole, I find most travelling not very interesting, and I hate flying so much that, for example, when I had to go uh, from Durban to Joburg about 10 days ago, I asked if I could be driven, and they were a bit surprised, but they said, well, okay, but it needs to be five and a half hours. And I said, do you not realise that if I go to the airport, sit there for an hour waiting and getting there a bit early because of security. And then I'm informed that the plane is running 40 minutes late. By the time I get on the train, there's another plane, and there's another 20 minutes on the tarmac. And then you fly for an hour, and then you get off and wait for your bags at the other end. That's four hours. And they said, oh, yeah, we hadn't thought of that. So I drove, somebody drove me from Durban up to Joburg, and I looked at this beautiful South African uh, countryside for five and a half hours and thoroughly enjoyed the trip. Have you ever made it to Madagascar? Because you have, rightly yes. wrong, become associated with the Lima. <laughs> I am, and I went to Madagascar to make a program about the Lima. Do you know this? Uh, no. Well, I've seen Fierce Creatures, obviously. Oh, yes. So, right. But no, I didn't realize Well, what that. had happened was that I was a, a patron of um, uh, what used to be called Jersey Zoo, which mm. is now the Gerald Durrell Wildlife Trust. And they are a fantastic conservation zoo. I mean, people go there and pay money, and that money goes to conservation. I mean, they run an incredibly efficient enterprise. There's an extraordinary lack of selfishness there. It's amazing how dedicated these people are. And I did meet Jerry once when we were filming with Python in in Jersey. Um, But his widow, Lee asked me if I would go to Madagascar and follow a release of captive-bred lemurs into a particular area of Madagascar because the the lemurs in that area, there weren't enough of them to provide the genes that are necessary to stop the lemurs literally becoming inbred. So there were six uh, lemurs that had been born and bred in America and came from the Duke University Primate Department, and they had been taken to Madagascar and released there. And I went out a few months later to see how they were doing. And they have, in fact, interbred. I was going to say intermarried, but they're such nice creatures they would marry if they were <laughs> given the opportunity. I, you hear a lot about gay marriage. You never hear about lemur marriage, do you? I think they should be incorporated it's possible um, that Doma covers lemurs. <laughs> possibly. Anyway, I think people who love each other should be allowed to be joined by the law if they regard that as a safe step in general. <laughs> That's the next thing, is it? Man and lemur. Man and lemur, that will be the next. I should have married a lemur because they're the most delightful creatures. But anyway, we discovered that, that, that it had worked and that that population of lemurs was now safe because there was a rich enough gene pool. I want to ask not to be obsessed with lemurs. Uh, it's not a lemur podcast especially, but is there a correct way to handle a lemur? Are they tricky creatures? To... No, they're the opposite of tricky. They are the sweetest little creatures. And if you offer them food, you know how monkeys will grab or even kitty cats will sort of... Not exactly snarl, but they will nip you a little bit. Lemurs, they will take the thing. Either they will take the grape gently from your fingers and pop it in their own mouth, or more likely they will just take it very gently from your fingers. And these these teeth could give you a nasty bite if you want to, and you never feel in any sort of danger with them. They're the sweetest nature's creatures. And you have one named after you, is this true? I do, yes. A lovely guy in uh, in uh, Zurich d- discovered a new lemur, and he asked permission, and it is called Cleese's Woolly Lemur, 
or Varhiclesiae is the Latin name for it. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah, yeah that's, that's real. Uh, I call that real. That's something that will enable me to be remembered uh, many, many months after I die. Mm. Just to loop back to Michael Palin, is he really as nice as his legend suggests? No, he's a bastard. <laughs> he's a very cantankerous, mean-spirited creature, and I don't know how uh, the Daily Mail has managed to persuade the world that I'm the mean-spirited one. He's only mean in one respect, and that is that if he's on stage, he will always break me up. He knows that if he and I get on stage, he can say something that will break me up. And we, we were doing um, the parrot sketch once in New York. I remember um, he'd just gone off, and he came back and said, sorry, Squire, we're fresh out of parrots, because he was supposed to give me a new one that wasn't dead. And I said, I see, I get the picture. And he said, I've got a slug. And... When when he said that, I was supposed to say, um, does it talk? And he was supposed to say, not really. But that night he said, well, it's muttering a bit tonight. And, of course, this just caught me off balance. And I couldn't proceed for about 30 seconds. I just got a fit of giggles. And when I got back to the sketch, I realized I'd completely forgotten where we were. Uh, in the sketch and I, I turned to the audience and I said what's the next line and 200 of them shouted the next line out. it was a wonderful moment you must have people coming up to you all the time and quoting obscure they stuff sometimes say things to me that I have no idea what they mean and I know that it's a reference to something I've done but over 50 years one's done quite a lot of stuff and you certainly don't remember it all I wanted to ask, is there something from your filmography that you think is a bit underappreciated? I think Fierce Creatures was better than people thought at the time. The trouble was the big disadvantage in show business of having a huge success is that it, it, it raises the bar so high that you can almost, almost certainly not meet expectations. And that's why I was smart not to do another series of 40 Toes. I could have done one. Mm. If I'd wanted to, and if Connie had wanted to, and what people would have said was, oh, it was very good, but it wasn't as good as the first two series. And what's the point of doing that unless you're desperate for money? Why do something that you know is not going to work as well as it did originally? Quit while you're ahead, essentially. Yeah, quit while you're ahead. And I should have, I made two mistakes on, on Fierce Creature. I didn't get the script quite right, um, which was very much my responsibility. But I also shouldn't have cast the same people as I cast from Fishcourt Wonder. If I'd cast completely different people, well, people would have realized I was not trying to do Fishcourt Wonder mm -hmm. 2. I was trying to do a completely different kind of a movie. Oddly enough, a family movie. I wanted to do something that the kids and the parents would like and laugh at the same time. Well, you say it wasn't true of Fishcourt Wonder because it was thoroughly cynical and, and mean-spirited and very funny with it. But this much warmer kind of movie, if people are not expecting it, then they will judge it from what they were expecting, not from what you actually give them. Um, I think one or two of the worst I've made, I mean, certainly I was in Yellowbeard, which must be one of the worst movies. Have you ever done a poll on worst movies ever? I'm sure we have. I'm sure I'd Yellow love Beard you didn't. to tell me if, if Yellowbeard's in there. I that think was Parting a Shots made the list. Who? Parting Shots. Oh, God, that, that, that was, was terrible. Oh, <laughs> that was terrible. Well, I only did that because I was so fond of Winner that I could not say no to him. You know, I did it. I knew how terrible it was at the time. <laughs> and uh, But I just love Winner so much. And he was so. He was such a funny 
and very warm man because under all that bluster, if anyone stood up to him, immediately they were his best friend, you know? Yeah. Now, that was a terrible one, parting shots. But I, and then the nice thing was I had billing below... And who was it? it? Was Michael Caine? Roger, Roger Moore and Michael Caine, I think it was. It was a, just terrible. But I don't think it was quite <laughs> as hopeless as Yellowbeard. Um, I, I once watched Yellowbeard. I switched the television on, and I thought, after about two minutes of staring at it in pose, I thought, my God, this is Yellowbeard. <laughs> and you sat there watching it and thinking, not how dreadful this is, but how could anyone have thought this would be anything other than dreadful? Do you see what I mean? You've yeah. moved to a new level of appallingness. Then I made one called Isn't She Great, which was the life of Jacqueline Suzette, and that was pretty terrible. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Clockwise, actually. I don't think that gets the recognition. That no, I think you're well. right. I think, But it, doesn't it get shown at Christmas on the television quite often? I think it does. It was yeah. also it was shot at Birmingham University, which is where I went. So I, I oh, that's right. Yes, yeah. we, we, we were shooting in the Midlands. That's yeah. right. But I loved that, that movie, but I didn't think we got the last five minutes right. And I remember I, I, I tried to persuade Michael Frayn, who is really my hero. I mean, this is a man of huge kindness and talent, um, and everything he does seems to have a sort of natural dignity to it. I think he's wonderful. I also think he wrote Copenhagen as one of the best plays I've ever seen in my entire life. Mm. Um, and uh, I love doing that, that, that clockwise, but I wanted him to come up with a more surprising ending. And he said, John, I just don't believe that people really learn from their mistakes. Mm. And I remember thinking, well, I agree with you, but I think it's a convention of movies that they do. <laughs> you know, it's sort of happy ending time. Mm -hmm. um, and and we, we had a rather downbeat ending where, you know, the, there was a, a truck. Um, a truck swerved and the apples came out of the truck at the back because there'd been a, mis uh, a mistake about right, whether it was the opposite of left or whether it was the same as the word correct. And I thought that was a mistake and it just faded away. And I felt it needed a much um, more creative and startling ending because we wanted we know that he committed various minor legal offenses but we we wanted him to survive you know and there was a movie i saw many years ago um i think it had a title like uh, what's that um the word american word for a private detective that's gumshoe gumshoe albert philly Finney, do you remember how at the end of the movie he just goes out the back garden and there's a hot air balloon there? Yeah, yeah. And he gets into the basket and goes, well, I think we should have had an ending like that. <laughs> but I agree with you. I think it's a super movie. I'm just curious, what makes you laugh these days? Are there any TV shows or, or films? Not, uh, not a lot. Not a lot in the way of humorous entertainment. I think there's some very, very good stand-up comedians around. I think that... Television comedy is pretty bad at the moment, but I don't blame the performers. I think the writers are insufficiently experienced. I don't think they spend as long uh, learning their trade as they used to in the old days, but there may just be an old man speaking. But your, daughter think, doing, uh, hmm? your daughter is doing stand-up. Your daughter is doing stand-up. Yes, she's doing stand-up. She's very good. I think there's a lot of talent in the stand-up. I think the main weakness at the moment, particularly in television, but it's also true in movies, is that the executives have almost no idea what they're doing. 
In fact, I would I would say that's sort of an incorrect statement. I would say the executives don't have any idea what they're doing, but they don't have any idea that they have no idea. So they're blundering around there trying to control everything without having a clue what's really going on. And that's very sad because I think if somebody put me in charge of BBC comedy, I could resurrect it within six months. But I think at the moment, the people there are just very poor. Well, just to end on a positive note, who's the stand-up comedian that that is entertaining you? Oh, I think um, recently, I mean, I had dinner with Eddie Izzard uh, three weeks ago in South Africa, and I am a huge fan of his. I love, he has a style entirely of his own. Um, but I think Michael McIntyre, there, there are some people who get a bit snotty about him and say something, oh, he's a bit tame. Well, you don't just have to be vulgar and sexual to be a stand-up comedian. You know, there, there are other ways of doing it, and I think he carries it off with Elan. I think he's a marvellous performer. John Cleese, thank you so much. That was pleasure a pleasure talking thank to you. you. Okay, now on to the reviews section. Let's start with a movie that's already out. It opened on Wednesday, and that's Kick-Ass Two, in which Aaron Taylor-Johnson, Chloe Grace Moretz, and Christopher Mintz-Plast bring their huge names together. They don Lycra and Leather once more to battle crime, or possibly be crime. Ooh, exciting. Uh, it's once again based on a Mark Miller, John Romita Jr. comic book, and it sees an escalation in wannabe superhero slash supervillain activity. And this time, Jim Carrey is along for the ride. Not that he would want to talk about it. Okay, what are our thoughts on Kick-Ass 2? Well, I think, to some extent, the first one was a little bit lightning in a bottle because uh, the whole premise of, of ordinary people taking up, you know, costumes and, and trying to be superheroes is is kind of a ridiculous one. And it played on that ridiculousness and, and did so very effectively. Um, it's hard to have shock value twice, and I think that's that's a little bit of a problem with this film. But that said, they they really try to you know return to the characters and and keep the focus on the characters, particularly Kickass and Hit Girl, Erin Taylor Johnson and Chloe Grace Moretz. So they're trying to now juggle their normal lives and trying to resist really the urge to dress up in costumes again and go out on the streets. Hit Girl has made a promise that she will just try to be Mindy McCready. Now uh, her guardian, who's now played by Morris Chestnut, has asked her to you know stop being a vigilante um, and uh, so there's a kind of a mean girls-esque subplot where she's trying to fit in in a normal school uh, meanwhile uh, Kick-Ass himself uh, has, has let his skills go to waste a little bit so he's he's trying to train with her to kind of get himself back up to speed um, and join in the gang led by Jim Carrey who are trying to bring justice to the city so yeah so that's kind of the setup but meanwhile their problem is that Christopher Mintz-Plass's uh, Red Mist is no longer um still tortured by his father's death last time around he has sworn revenge and uh, is determined to get it at all costs and when Kickass comes you know back into town and starts acting up again he reintroduces himself uh, as a new character a new supervillain the first real supervillain mm-hmm. uh, in this world what's his name it's the motherfucker okay it's gonna be really difficult I'm gonna be on the radio talking about this tomorrow how the hell am I gonna do that I think you just Today. say he reinvents himself. But so yeah, so he is is has invented reinvented himself as a, a supervillain whose whose superpower is having lots of money and being able to hire uh, very tough people, which is I thought quite amusing. And he does hire some really really horrible people. Mother Russia, who's one of the thugs who he hires, is genuinely I thought quite scary and horrible. Um, and and so the 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 stage is set for a clash between the two gangs. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of the setup. As I say, I, I feel like it loses some of that originality and that shock. And it tries to compensate for the loss of shock value by being more shocking um, in terms of its violence and in terms of uh, its story beats. And and actually, I thought that was... Sometimes it goes... A, I don't know, I'm about to sound very Daily Mail if I say it goes a bit too far. But it, it goes, you know, to some really uncomfortable places. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a tough one. This. I mean, I I I enjoyed a lot of it, mm-hmm. um, but I'm a huge fan of the original Kickass. Uh, it was a uh, completely took me by surprise. I loved it. I thought it was fresh and vital and felt slightly edgy and had great performances and introduced Chloe Moretz to the world and we all knew right from the moment we saw her that oh, this is going to be a huge star and also had, had probably four brilliant action sequences and Nick Cage being just the best he's been for a very long long time as, as Big Daddy uh, so I really really loved it and we, I gave it five stars in, in Empire um, and this movie doesn't live up to it. It has a lot of good things going for it um, but it does feel like it's kind of treading water slightly a little bit. Um, the, uh, the the big name guest star Jim Carrey who has come out in, in public and said he won't talk about the film because he disagrees with the levels of violence is a bit of a nothing character. He plays Colonel Stars and Stripes who's a leader of Justice Forever which is the uh, the super group <laughs> that Kick-Ass gets involved with. None of them have powers of course. That's the joke of this movie. None of them have powers. Um, and he's in it for about 10 minutes if that doesn't get a lot to do doesn't get a lot to say and is kind of a bit of a I think nothing. he's really good when he's there he's really good but, but you know, yeah I just wanted more of him and again I mean I would say you know like the first one the action scenes are actually pretty well done I think I think Jeff Wadlow puts them together really well yeah. you can generally see what's going on and who's doing what to whom yeah. um, which is which is good um, but there's some, there's some really odd tonal shifts you go from mm. quite a heavy emotional scene to a crazy action scene very very fast at times mm. and and that really you know that that's an that's an odd thing even in in, a, in in a film like this which does seek to kind of you know overturn the, the traditions of I guess the action the superhero genre yeah and there, there are certain subplots I quite enjoyed I actually quite enjoyed the uh, the Mindy uh, McCready uh, falls in with a group of mean girls at her at her high school uh, I quite enjoyed the subplot I thought it was quite funny and, and probably has the most comedically shocking moment uh, denouement in the movie Yes. Possibly. The, the most intentionally, anyway, I would say. Uh, there's one scene in particular I, th- I found very, very distasteful, uh, and it's a, a, a twist on something that happens in the comic book, and I don't think the solution they came up with works entirely, and you prob- they probably could, should have just jettisoned the whole thing. You'll know, you'll know the scene when I, when you see it. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, it's 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 fine. It's it's okay as, as, as sequels go, but I think the original was such a breath of fresh air and this does feel like it's hitting a lot of the same notes. I think there's some things that you just can't sequelise to the same effect. You, you, can't, you can't recapture the lightning, basically. Uh, we gave it three stars, which, as we always say on the show, is a recommendation, so do get out and see Kick-Ass 2 and let us know what you think. Next up is a movie that's out next Wednesday, the 21st. Uh, it's the eagerly awaited follow-up to District 9 by the brilliant Neil Blomkamp. Elysium stars Matt Damon, Jodie Foster and Charlotte Copley in a sci-fi tale that posits a future where Earth's super-rich have decanted to a space station above the planet, while the plebs are left to suffer and die below. But when Matt Damon's regular guy, Max, gets radiation poisoning, he tries to break into Elysium to get some healing. Regular, sexual, whatever they've got, really. Uh, thoughts on Elysium, Philip? District 9 follow-up from Neil Blumkamp is something we're obviously very excited about and looking forward to. Did it live up to that? It did to an extent, yes. What his film, what this sci-fi does, and what he clearly has an interest in as District 9 shown, was a little riff on the whole notion of apartheid in a sci-fi futuristic universe. This does what I think Andrew Nichols tried to do, um, what Logan's Run tries to do with youth. Andrew Nichols in time did it with time as a currency. Here it's about health. Here it's about the the, the wealthy, the one percenters own basically the means of, of repairing the human body. And they've taken it away and they've put it in this giant space donut. Um, Max, as you mentioned, Matt Damon's character needs to get healed within a certain 
rather arbitrary time period that he has, and again, rather or rather arbitrarily, he's given these 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 drugs that keep him functioning a hundred almost a hundred percent. He then falls in with this because he has a criminal past. He falls in with this kind of covert gang who have bigger bigger fish to fry in terms of trying to bring down this kind of corrupt affluent auto- autocratic regime um, who fix him up with this incredible kind of exoskeleton mech suit you've probably seen the design for it it's it's an amazingly mm. kind of visceral thing watching him have this thing fitted you're like sitting in your chair wincing as they're really? drilling into his bones it's full <laughs> on it's like your worst dentist appointment without the novocaine multiplied by about 100 million he as i said it's a sort of race against time you've got the evil you've got a lot of archetypes in this you've got the evil kind of um, capitalist played by the great Bill Fickner. Um You've got Jodie Foster as a rather two-dimensional kind of scheming politico who lives up in this Elysium kind of haven. And um, and then you've got Shelter Copley, um, free of prawns this time, but but this kind of like heavily South African accented uh, mercenary guy that basically executes the will of the state on Earth. He goes full Sather. He is very, very brutal the sweet and light version of South Africa you met with uh, Vickers van der Merwe uh, is out the window. This, as he jokes in the interview you'll hear next week, we have a great interview with both uh, Neil Blomkamp and Shalto Copley next week, so look forward to that. Uh, it has it has me essentially saying to Shalto, you've brought back South African relations with the world about 20 years. <laughs> How do you feel about that? Because in District 9 it kind of reminded you that you know there are white South Africans who are really lovely, sweet people. Like, they, you know, South Africa is a place, don't forget about it. But here, he is a means business psychopath. He um, has an, an awesome array, uh, array of weaponry. He's kind of a covert ops, you know, sleeper agent used by Jodie Foster's character, like you say, to do the things that cannot be done officially. And he can do bad. Like, he can do bad. And it is full on and it is visceral. And you will enjoy it for what it's worth. But, um, I think the reason why I like this film is, as you may have guessed, uh, the design and kind of the world that, that Blomkamp can create. The guns are fascinating. It's very similar to James Cameron in that aspect. Uh, you've got these throwing sh- you know, shurikens and, and stuff like that. And these kind of, it's almost like steampunk in the way he approaches mm. machinery. It's kind of bodging. It's like if Scrap Heap Challenge were given a bunch of nitrous oxide, some you know magnesium and a few cannons they just say right make a gun and you can see these guns and they're they're beautiful but there's a mixture of that kind of on the earth los angeles is based essentially in this kind of post-apocalyptic-esque los angeles and comparing that with elysium you see the super tech the beautiful sleek kind of fighter jet lamborghini tech up in elysium and you get this kind of steampunky stuff downstairs that's lovely to see it's great to see what he does with a bit more budget and um a lot more time to design it it's funny that so many sci-fi films that we're seeing at the moment basically come down to Apple versus Microsoft, you know, because <laughs> um, there's a little bit of that going on in, in Oblivion and so on as well. It's just, you know, there's the sleek, white, shiny things. Uh, we had it as well in to- the new Total Recall a little bit and then the kind of gungy, functional, you yeah. know, cobbled together stuff. It's the Apple Store, the Apple Store aesthetic of the kind of future state is great in this. It's a Sid Mead design design world. Um, and it's just green lawns and big mansions, and it's like Surrey in space, and everyone aspires to be there, and they've got this machine that can heal you of all ills. The only way is Elysium. 
That would be it. That would be it. well. That, you know what? It needed a bit story. more of that because that's where this film, I think, fell down. The Elysium was kind of underdeveloped. Didn't really understand what was happening within the state. I didn't really understand it, the Jodie Foster thing was, as I say, a bit two dimensional, and that lets the film down in the third act a little bit for me. It's very much a recognisably Neil Blomkamp film. This, in a lot of ways, in thematic, if you think about it, there's quite a lot of the District Nine parallels. The guy that has this kind of massive physical kind of problem on his hands has to get to this you know extraterrestrial kind of vehicle and make things happen the design is you know replicates the the genius of district nine really fantastic what i love about it is it's like mos eisley you know in in the first star wars that it's just this rundown gritty grimy all of the all of the design everything's rusty and it's you know it feels real it feels very kind of Grim, this world that Matt Damon his character has to navigate, which gives his cause a bit more nobility and makes this makes the satirical elements interesting. I just thought, as an action film in the third act, it didn't quite come off. But the world building is fantastic. I should defend its action sequence. There is a fight between Charlotte Copley and Matt Damon, which is good. It's good. It's 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 it does things which only the technology and the world that he's created allows it to do. So that's you know the kind of price of admission moment I think the script needed maybe and I'm not down on this film, the script maybe needed another look uh, because there were lines that you might point out as two dimensional which were quite get to the next scene lines for some people it doesn't matter, you're just watching the action movie and you're enjoying it but for me I kind of expect so much from District 9 um, and this though it doesn't quite hit those heights is still a film worth watching the armaments kind of do interesting things with time and space and movement and motion that other films don't really do. I think you can sense how much he loves the design element of this. Yeah. Maybe slightly to the detriment of some of the plotting, which I think could have, like Ali says, could have used a bit of a notch, notch or two tighter, especially towards the end. But I think he's a true original. I think he's he's obviously he draws upon lots of elements of other movies and he's been inspired by a lot of science fiction in the past but it's great to see a director who like Duncan Jones he's just come out and gone yeah, I'm, I'm doing my own thing I, you know, I want to I want to build worlds and that should be applauded I think and I'm looking forward to see what he does next and it's also you know nice to see a film with a message like this you know it's not the sort of Michael Bay militarism it's uh a message about hey guys maybe we should share a bit which is kind of you know yeah, a nice thing to absolutely. see absolutely and you're right like Duncan Jones I think he takes his cues from 70s sci-fi you know the alien and the silent running and all of those kind of the outland those kind of films I think those are his some of his touch points and sci-fi novels as well I feel like we're getting closer to the kind of hardcore sci-fi novels of the of the last well century really at this point you know it's it's not just space opera it's not just man versus creature anymore it's we're kind of getting into sci-fi concept which I think is great fantastic so uh, four stars for Elysium overall so do go and check that out when it opens next Wednesday of course if you're listening to us after next Wednesday the 21st then it's already out okay another film is already out because it opened on Friday the 16th is Two Guns which pairs Denzel Washington and Mark Wahlberg in a wise cracking bullet spewing action comedy actually they're not they're not the expendables they should be the expendables shouldn't they yeah, anyway, uh, they start as two undercover agents who pull a bank heist and then have to deal with the aftermath as all manner of bad folks, including Bill Paxton and Edward James Olmos, another Battlestar Galactica reference, uh, pursue them with malicious intent. Thoughts on this one? Whoever's seen it? I really enjoy this film. As you mentioned, it is a case of two undercover operatives, one working for the DEA and one working for Naval Intelligence, are together seemingly trying to bust each other south of the border yeah so Edward James almost his character is a drug smuggler uh, south of the border but it's not just up against him it's one of those movies that has about 14 twists yeah 
obviously one of the twists which you know from the premise of the film and from the trailer is that they are both undercover operatives there's much more to that and if anything it could do with about four fewer twists because i enjoyed how it kind of got on board with this kind of turn left turn right turn left go up the tree turn left turn left kind of plotting and i do enjoy that uh but by the end of it i was like what another one really uh but my big positive is their connection Denzel Washington and Mark Wahlberg together as their characters are so funny. They made mm. me laugh regularly. Mark Wahlberg is a total live wire. He will do anything whenever. He's a charmer. He's a kind of a winker. He's a finger clicker type guy. Whereas Denzel Washington is more grounded. Uh, he's laid back and methodical, and but he's very, very cool and charming in that sort of Denzel way. Is he but... by the book? No, he's not by the book. No. He's not by the book. By the no. book. Uh, well, uh, no. I don't think uh, Mark Wahlberg's character has read a book, I'll be honest with you. Is the uh, drug dealer by the book? Somebody's got to be by the book in this uh, film. Bill Paxton's by the book? Yeah. He's, a, he's a CIA black ops officer whose money, it turns out, they've stolen. And he wants it back for all $45 million of it. So, uh, And he's, uh, he's quite ruthless in the way he goes about getting it back. And it's great to see Bill Paxton back in the big screen in a role that's worthy of, uh, of his name Top Tash as well I he's really say. good in it he's really good in it I, I really enjoyed this movie I, I have to say it delivers it has decent action sequences it's got a nice bit of comedy the chemistry between uh, Wahlberg and Washington is, is first class which is a bit of a surprise then that they keep them apart for much of the film um, as uh, Bobby the Denzel Washington character and uh, Stig Lee, uh, not Lee Stig, but Stig, uh, the Wahlberg character, go off and do their own little investigations and they're circling around each other. They're not too sure about each other for a lot in the movie. But when they come together and banter, uh, it's it's really, really funny. And you can see a franchise in this if Denzel, who's never done a sequel, uh, would be up for it. So uh, I'd like to see these characters do it again. What I love about this, uh, like you say, is the character's chemistry. And yes, there wasn't enough of it together, but it always kind of teases you. He goes, hey, do you remember how great that chemistry was? Well, here it is again. And then your face just <laughs> lights up. And they separate and they come back and go, oh, this is brilliant. And it ends with, as you may have guessed, with this kind of, it's an 80s throwback. It's definitely an oh, 80s yeah. throwback, you know, uh, buddy cop comedy action thriller type job, twist turns, laughs. But it gets it in the way The Expendables doesn't. And uh, I think that, that this is a it's, a it's a really fun concoction. I gave it three. It probably doesn't deserve any more than that, but it is very, very entertaining and does. It's very redolent of films like the Lethal Weapon movies, uh, obviously, and Midnight Run as well. In the way that you have two guys kind of on the run, but also being pursued by factions of bad guys, and uh, they're pursued by tons of guys as well. Um, it it so. gives itself a very neat way of going into a sequel. But the one problem is, what do you call the sequel to Two Guns? Is it Two Guns Two? Is it Three Guns? Is it Two Guns Two? Furious. There's got to be a way. If you do know of any others or got any other suggestions, do let me know. Two Guns One Cup. No. 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 Bad Chris. <laughs> I'd pay to see that. Also out this week is Planes, as we've seen, with John Cleese in it and uh, other people like Dane Cook. And that's in the world of cars, isn't it, Helen? It's above the world of cars. Above the world of cars. Yeah, is there a crossover? Comes... Does there, do we see the Nick Fury of cars come in and <laughs> unite the two uh, genres? Yeah, no, not so much. It's it's a Disney animation film, not a Pixar film, by yeah. the way, so do bear that in mind. And it's kind of the Disney animation directed DVD department, but upgraded to cinema. So... Bear that in mind and make of it what you will. Yes, a new new umbrella, uh, isn't it, of Disney, which is, I think, called Disney Toons. So they make these movies and they decide whether they're going to go to cinemas or whether they're going to go straight to DVD. And this one, they mm. decided to go straight to cinema. So, yay. <laughs> Lucky kids. That's it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun, where we'll be joined by the star of Lovelace, Miss Amanda Seyfried, which is the actual pronunciation, isn't it, Ali? I believe so. 
Correct. Uh, and the hilarious star of Wheeler Miller's former Saturday Night Live stalwart, Mr. Jason Sudeikis, and that is also how you pronounce that. This is a bopper podcast. Also, look out for a special. Next week, we're going to have a long interview with, as we mentioned, Neil Blomkamp and Shanta Copley talking about Elysium and much, much more. So do check that out when it goes up. Uh, and also, do keep an eye out uh, for our World's End spoiler podcast with Edgar Wright, Simon Pegg, and Nick Frost, which is coming up on August 26th. If you have any questions about uh, that for the portion where we dissect the movie, then do send them into our email address, which is podcast at empireonline.com. Uh, until then, it is goodbye from Ali. Goodbye now. It's goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Helen. Bye-bye. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to retweet some praise. See you next week. <laughs>